Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever you're listening to us. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast, and I am one of your hosts. I, of course, am the ever-exuberant Michael Feenan. And I'm the less exuberant Aaron Hill. Thanks for joining us tonight. We got to come up with a better tagline for you, man. Less exuberant sounds (laughs) just not as exciting. (laughs) Well, give me a few drinks, I'll become more exuberant. (laughs) I want to... Thank our sponsors who make the Drunken UX po- podcast possible at over at New Cloud. You can check them out at newcloud.com slash drunken UX. That is uh, in you cloud.com. Uh, otherwise, let me see what else. Uh, I'm Michael Feeney. He's Aaron Hill. We got New Cloud as a sponsor. Oh, run by Facebook, Twitter. Um, you can check us out at slash drunken UX at either of those places and keep up with us. Uh, we retweet stuff. We share stuff. We let you know about things going on. Um, schedule changes, things of that nature. So be sure to stop by if you want to check us out on Slack and, and talk to us, especially after today's episode. Uh, we would love to hear what you're doing for security purposes and things like that. So if you run by, either you know, hit us on Slack at drunkenux.com slash Slack or um, leave a comment in our show notes or tweet at us, Facebook at us, whatever. I don't care. I just want to hear from you because that is super, super duper exciting for me. So Michael, I heard a lot of liquid getting poured earlier. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, Michael is um, okay, so I've got a a slightly pulled oblique muscle from hauling boxes at a conference, and so I'm a little sore, and so I'm self medicating this evening with um, a glass of scotch. And when I say a glass, I don't mean like you know a finger or two fingers of scotch. I mean a glass of scotch. Um, yeah. This is a Spayburn tin. It's a Highland scotch. I don't know much about it. Somebody gifted this to me at some point, and I don't remember who. <laughs> it may have been my brother-in-law. Um, I don't entirely remember. Um, it's It's got very interesting reviews. There are a lot of folks who say it's a really good value. Um, on the nose, it smells a little bit like sweaty socks, so I'm not entirely <laughs> convinced that it's good yet, but I'm going to give it a fair shake, and uh, by the end of this show, you'll probably know how good it is by how good I feel. <laughs> I haven't even seen your glass yet. What are you drinking over there? I have another... TNT Tangerine Tonic with a giant ice cube that I got these um I say a garage sale or something and I got one of those uh, silicon cube trays that yeah. the cube are like two or three inches across and no, it takes like a day and a half to freeze. <laughs> no kidding though, because I got uh, I do the Reddit um, gift exchange every year mm-hmm. um, for Christmas, and the guy who had me as his secret Santa. Uh, that's what he gave me was one nice. of those. It's like the the red silicone big. They're amazing, aren't they? Oh, I love it. In fact, that's what I'm using here. I've also got some of the spheres too. The yeah, I have those uh, too. The big spheres. So yeah, I never yeah. need for and with with this scotch, I've got a feeling the ice is going to come in handy. So um, <laughs> that's, what I, I found, think. I just have a giant plastic box in my freezer, and I just make the cubes. I guess like you would do with normal cubes, but you have to be like because it takes so long to freeze, you have to do it more often. You just don't drink enough. That's all that means. If you can say, so today is a special episode. Of course, Uh, we have found that bringing people onto the show is a fun, exciting experience, and so we thought, hey, we want to talk a little bit about the basics of web security. Who do we know that knows anything about web security? And uh, my great friend and Aaron's kind of friend, 
Chris Wigman is on uh, mic number three this evening. Chris, thank you very much for joining us this evening. And I see yeah. that you also have a bottle on your table. I do. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, nothing nothing as fancy as scotch or anything that requires an ice cube. But I got a nice uh, Weisstefaner Hefeweizen. So nice classic beer. Seemed appropriate. Isn't there something special about that particular brewery? Supposedly, they, they they build themselves as the oldest brewery in the world since 1040. So That's impressive. Coming up on a, it, it, I don't know how accurate that is, but they're coming up on their proclaimed thousandth anniversary in our lifetimes. I, I feel like there are some uh, some monks in uh, one of those abbeys that would have something to say about that. Doesn't isn't there one of those that they like they make a, a bottling of beer like every year, and there's only a few hundred bottles or something, and people line up for miles to buy it. I remember looking at this guy, these guys once, and some they have a story similar to that. And then, yeah, some of the other, especially the Trappist monasteries and that, but the mm, Trappists, Trappists are newer in general. I mean, the Trappists, the yeah, Trappists are successors, like, what, 15th, 16th, 16th century. Wow. So I, I don't know how that all comes in there. But, yeah, these guys say they're the oldest. Maybe that's the oldest commercial one, oldest distributing one. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> So for our listeners, uh, you might know Chris from a number of places. He's currently a senior web developer over at uh, the University of Florida. Go Gators! Uh, kind of close, right? How how far is that from Miami? From Miami, five hours. Okay, yeah, so it's a little little ways. Because I almost uh, was a hurricane when I went to college. I I had to basically flip a coin between two schools, and I chose the wrong one, as it turns out. So. <laughs> uh, but he's also uh, where you really might know him from if you are a WordPress user of any kind. Um, Chris, uh, I, I, I was about to say help develop, but you, I mean, you developed the Better WP uh, security plugin, didn't you? Yep, I built that and then uh, eventually sold it to iThemes where it became iThemes Security. And, and you worked over there with them for a year or two, uh, a couple years back, right? Yep, I was with them once I sold it and kind of directed the integration if you will of that for about a year and a hmm. couple of months before i went to something else cool <laughs> it's so, always really cool seeing that plugin come up like on different themes like in other people's things yeah it got definitely a lot bigger than i ever had imagined it would once i started yeah. it that's for darn sure <laughs> i know somebody famous <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's Chris. We're going to be talking with him uh, here in just a moment about web security. We're going to kind of run through very basics. We're not going to get deep into firewall configurations and, you know, hardcore SQL injections and penetration testing. We just want to talk about how if you are a web developer, especially a young one getting started or something along those lines, you know, what you should be thinking about and how you just get the very basics going so that you can make sure your stuff is secure. I want to talk first, though. Because I got something I got to share, and it's one of the so. And I, I say that, and you know what it makes me think about is like uh, the old horror movies where it's like what the ring. You see mm -hmm. the videotape, and you got to hand the videotape off in seven days, or you die. Yeah. Yes, that's how I feel at the moment. Yeah, well, this you shared it with me. Uh, I got to agree. I think this is the right thing to do. The uh, the headline I came across earlier today, and this has nothing to do with web. I just want to talk about it because I feel creepy. Um, the headline was David Lynch made a disturbing web sitcom called Rabbits. It's now used by psychologists to induce a sense of existential crisis in research subjects. <laughs> and so I, I was like, <laughs> I, I like David Lynch. I have nothing against the man. I enjoy a good, weird 
creepy kind of film. And I sat down and watched about 10 minutes of this rabbits um, episode slash movie. It's kind of unknown what it really is. And all I can say is I don't think I've seen something that weird in about 10 years. Um, Coming from you, that says an awful lot. <laughs> I, you know, it this feels bizarre. Watching it feels like um, if you ever like sit in a room and just make eye contact with somebody and say nothing. And then there's this whole like parade of feelings that go through. Like at first it's like, oh, like giggle. Like this is fun, weird. Like, and then it gets awkward and then it gets strange. And then it gets this weird place where it just, it just feels, it feels too real. And that's kind of so, what it felt like watching this. It, it feels like Lynch took Donnie Darko and put it in a blender <laughs> yes. with too many cooks. That's what it feels like. Yes. Oh my God. Too many cooks. Yes. Yeah, definitely. The, the style, it was made about 15 years ago, and I think 2002 is when he recorded this. And he did it when he was doing that recording on like either, either Digital 8 or something like that. So it's got a very amateur kind of feel to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's got that kind of style to his to his uh, filming. Um, all It's got three characters in it. They are anthropomorphized rabbits. Um, yeah. People in giant like a- rabbits. Looks like a Barbie playhouse almost that they're in. One of those rabbits is Naomi Watts. What? Really? Yeah. She's in like a lot of his films though. It's I so the the research they were doing, um, because I had to know, I just I had to understand what was going on. These researchers uh back around 2013 were taking people and they would have they had two groups, and some of them they said, Here, write us a few paragraphs on what you think happens to your body when you die. <laughs> and then the other group they had watch rabbits and write about it or something like that. And they gave them Tylenol. They were, they were testing whether or not Tylenol slash acetaminophen had the ability to relieve the pain of existential crisis. <laughs> and they found that it did. So I need people to feel the weird uncomfortable whatever this is that i have mm. in me now um which sounds way dirtier than i intended to go <laughs> go look up youtube it's on youtube like everything is david lynch rabbits put in the show notes and cool. yeah oh no there's gonna be a link in the show notes yeah. i will embed the youtube video there <laughs> if i have to uh, let's also include too many cooks and the um the rejected by don hertzfeld Ah, yeah. Yeah, I think those are in a similar vein. My, my spoon is too big. <laughs> I'm feeling fat and sassy. <laughs> so with that, God, now I I don't know if I can get through the rest of the show after that. <laughs> Keep um, drinking. This is by far the best intro I've ever had. There's opening topic to start with security. Then. You don't even have to pay us for it. <laughs> <laughs> it we we for brought you on to save us. What are you talking about? <laughs> Pull us out of this uh, this downward spiral. <laughs> yeah. Nine Inch Nails, David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, that was uh, that was a reach. I'm sorry. Uh, so to get started today, we mentioned we're going to talk about web security, some basics. Um, I am going to try effort to split us up into you know two halves. First, I want to talk a little bit about basic like the server level stuff. 
uh, and just the you know the simple tools that are out there and what you can use and then we'll get a little bit more into like the actual web side of things on application level and stuff like that help you understand the different types of attacks that are out there and how you protect against those um and chris if you think we're going to get off of here without talking about wordpress a little bit well you're wrong uh <laughs> that's gonna happen but uh chris is a great guy to help us along and keep us steered right i think uh, is probably the best part about this so we're, we're gonna bring chris on who did wordpress security and then not talk about wordpress yeah. the whole show we're gonna avoid it specifically wait this isn't a, this isn't a drupal show yeah it's yeah. only drupal we only talk uh, about drupal it makes sense it could be if you want it to be <laughs> good lord um, so the a lot of folks get started um you know they don't think about security a lot because the first step that most web developers take is they go out they hit bluehost or hostgator or one of these folks for 3.95 a month the shared host they probably get a free ssl certificate with it and that's what they do and mm -hmm. they run along with that idea until the first time some website that they've never heard of gets compromised and mm. then suddenly every WordPress site on that server that they happen to be sharing is suddenly compromised. And they're trying to figure out what they did wrong. And it was nothing. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just that shared hosting sucks and it's a terrible value for what you get out of it. Uh, I yeah. might be a little jaded because I might have a history with a couple <laughs> web hosts that uh, did not have good security. To say Last time I was in Aaron's neck of the woods, I was about two o'clock in the morning on an Amtrak going through upstate New York, trying to fix a site where a host had taken it down for <laughs> another site of the box had gotten compromised. So they took the whole box down and just basically told us all too bad. Wow. So the answer to why should you host your own website is, yeah, it's more work, but it's way easier to know if something's going wrong, if it's your fault. Um, I won't even say host your own, but pay for good hosting. Pay for I mean, good if you hosting, don't know yeah. what you're doing, then you're probably worse off than even the shared hosting. But there's so many good hosts out there, you know, managed EPS, uh, you know, managed WordPress hosts, things like that. That yeah, they're 30, 35 bucks a month. They're not the 395 special, but you get what you pay for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's that is a very fair statement that probably bears uh, uh clarification that we should look at the the bulk sort of uh what do you want to call it the clearinghouse web hosts um you know the the Walmart web hosts so to speak e Ver <laughs> yeah versus like say like a WP engine or somebody like this that i mean their business is hosting lots of websites and keeping them very secure and taking that stuff very seriously um a disclaimer uh the company i work for we do use WP engine um i am thrilled with it that's not a paid endorsement of any kind or anything like that. It's been great for us. I've had no security problems with it to date. So uh, there is definitely a distinction there. But like I say, yeah, we we pay for that that uh, advantage. Um, it is not four bucks a month. It's I think they start at like twenty a month or something like that. Um, thirty, I think nowadays is it thirty? Yeah, they just they raised prices recently, so uh, the, I don't have to sign that check. <laughs> The continuum of that is on the one hand, you have the shared hosting on the cheap side, and then you have the self-hosted where you manage it, and then you have the managed, that's managed hosting, right? WP Engine? Yeah. 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 Or you could do the hybrid in something like DigitalOcean where you go just rent a box, and then for $10 a month, you can, or 
more depending on what plan you get. You can pay somebody like Server Pilot to manage that box that you mm. get for you and actually split that up. Yeah, and I've you know I've heard a lot about Server Pilot in the last probably six months. I've never used it yet, but it seems really interesting. Hmm. A podcast organization I do a lot of work for. I moved them over to Server Pilot. Oh, I don't know, a year ago, and they it's been wonderful for them. Which for our listeners, Server Pilot is basically a um, I don't want to call it a, a dashboard. Doesn't sound right, like a hypervisor kind of service, right? Isn't that a fair way so of putting? So much that it's more of a manager. It's more of a bot that goes in and just updates everything for you and makes sure everything's in good shape, handles the backups. So it's I wouldn't. It, it's not a virtualization thing in it of itself because you have a full. Like you actually have to go out and rent the real server. They only use. I think they only use DigitalOcean, but then they connect to that server and they install things for you and set it up and get everything secured for you. And I'm a DigitalOcean user myself, uh, and one of my side companies also uses it for our application infrastructure. Huge fan. Um, and that's where I get into stuff like, if you're paying $4 a month for you know a, a cheap shared host, you have no excuse to not spend $5 a month with a basic DO droplet and yeah. take a couple days and just learn how to configure it right. Yep. Uh, that value is worth its weight in gold because at the end of the day, the, going through that process in general is going to make you better. It's going to make you a better developer. It's going to help you understand how shit works. Uh, I was going to say too, as a developer, you could spin up a five dollar. Yeah, I use Linode for my boxes just because. Yeah, they leapfrog. Linode's faster for a year than DigitalOcean will upgrade hardware and it'll be faster. Currently, I'm on Linode because it this guy has been faster. If I could spin up for five bucks, I can run 20 or 30 dev sites. So any client that I'm working on on the side, forget this DNS, you know, Docker, Vagrant, whatever you want to use locally is great. But you could, if you could set it up on a server and actually show that client, mm -hmm. then you're not putting production stuff. You know, I, I don't know. I, I shy away from telling anybody who doesn't know servers well to put something in production on a for a client or anything other than their <laughs> own stuff. But for dev work, <laughs> You can, you can learn a whole lot. Sorry, Mike, I'm not trying to back that off, but I no. I do worry about that because I've made that suggestion before and it's blown up in my face. There are no right answers. There are no wrong answers. I shouldn't say no. There are wrong answers with GDPR out there now. Uh, a lot of these, um, a lot of the configurable servers like DigitalOcean or Linode, um, the the hosts have. Usually have huge knowledge bases with all of like the like you want to install WordPress, you want to install like fail to ban, you want to install like UFW, whatever. And they'll have like these really elaborate how tos that explain exactly how to do it. And so even if you're not comfortable or understand how to do it yourself, if you're feeling adventurous, you can totally kind of go by the recipe. And they're they're usually pretty reproducible without problems. And yeah, that brings up a good thing too. If you're going to do it, a combination of Fail to ban with UFW uh, slash IP. I mean, UFW is nothing but a, a way to make IP tables, which is the classic user Linux mm -hmm. firewall. It's a way to make it easier. And fail to ban just uses both of them. It just looks at log files. So when somebody tries to get to your box and they get the password wrong a couple of times, it blocks it at the firewall level. So if you're going to play with those services, DigitalOcean, Linode, Vulture, whatever. And you might be thinking... Like, oh, I just have a tiny little blog with maybe like five or 10 readers that most of them know me personally. Nobody will ever try to hack my site. And you would be wrong because 
you can put up I had I had a dev instance put up that was only used by me and within oh a day I had Chinese and Russian IPs hammering at it and trying to break into SSH. <laughs> well, it's not about you people shouldn't think of themselves as well I'm small so why would I ever be a target? Right. It's not about you. It's about when your IP address just comes up in the Rolodex. Yeah. That's all it amounts to. There's robots that are just scanning random numbers on the internet. That's really reductive to say, explain it like that, but that's basically what it is. Well, just go through internet and see which domains have been registered, see mm -hmm. if there's something vulnerable. If you're on DigitalOcean, hey, now you got another crypto miner, even if it's the five bucks, I mean, that's still resources, yeah. right? If you're on shared hosting, hey, look, now you got a couple thousand sites, maybe you'll get lucky and you get the guy with 10,000 hits a day and now you're spamming links out of there. And <laughs> Well, with the rise of things like the uh, the JavaScript crypto miners and stuff, too, oh if God. you're injecting that into somebody's site or theme uh, and they don't even know it's there and outside of somebody noticing that their CPU is spiking when they visit your site, that could sit there for months without getting detected if somebody isn't paying attention. Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely something to, you know, to consider. And, and Aaron, you brought up like the documentation side. I found digital oceans documentation before i actually started using their service mm -hmm. and that's why i started using their service was because yeah. they yeah. killed it in the documentation department and yeah. being able to read through very clear because that's one thing i always find with a lot of uh, especially like real you know server level uh, uh command prompt level instructions can sometimes get a little gnarly um, mm -hmm. you know, depending on the person writing it, they may skip something obvious or they won't explain why they're doing a certain mm -hmm. step. And I'm big about that. Bad. I, I get really annoyed. It doesn't matter if it's a server thing, a code thing, whatever. When people just spit code out, but don't say what it is doing, that mm -hmm. annoys me because I'm trying to learn. I want to know, well, why did you throw this command in there? Because I may not need that later. I may want to build mm -hmm. on it or whatever. Um, but digital ocean stuff, like they, they had the right idea because they kind of came at this with their service, but they really came at it with a robust documentation suite when they launched. And they have been winning the SEO contest out of the gate against mm -hmm. ever, even when I'm searching for generic tutorials. Now yeah. I know Google, you know, they, they bias their search results anyway, but um, I still regularly point people to DigitalOcean documentation because it's like, it doesn't matter. If you're right. using, you know, Ubuntu, you know, 16.04 or 18.04 or whatever, it's still, the commands work the same. It's, you know, yeah. it has nothing to do with where you're hosting at that point. DigitalOcean is by far the best resource probably out there right now for Ubuntu DevOps. Yeah, definitely. And the nice thing is that since Ubuntu is all um, like centralized repository package management, I know that like Red has RPM and everything, but like the app-based system is awesome because whether you're doing it on, your own private server elsewhere or your your home desktop or on your DigitalOcean account or on a Linode account running the same version of Ubuntu, the packages are going to be the same. Yeah. The configuration will almost certainly be the same. Sometimes like the directories will be mapped slightly differently. And so that's why like when Michael was talking about the explanations of things, that can be really nice because it's like, oh, you know, they explain like it's going to be in slash opt or whatever. Maybe yours isn't in slash opt, it's in slash Etsy or something. So, Chris, you mentioned, uh, I, I think it was, uh, I think you said it first, uh, fail to ban is obviously one of the first stops you make. Um, fail to ban basically just 
watches people trying to log into your server and you mm -hmm. point it at SSH or whatever you've got open. And um, I think, it, you know, you can lock it into uh, HT access stuff or, or whatever the case may be. And if somebody tries to log in three times and fails, their IP gets put in the IP tables as just a disallow. You don't yeah. get in. Yeah. And, and there's 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 three levels to this, right? First of all, you have to have IT, IP tables as a firewall. It's mm -hmm. just above the kernel, kernel level. So if an IP is blocked at this, they're not even touching your PHP. They're not executing scripts. They're not getting to your Apache, Nginx, whatever. Okay, so you want that. It's going to save resources as you block somebody. You, you know, and Ubuntu, you turn UFW on, you allow 80 and 443 and your SSH port, which should probably be set to something over 2000. Mm -hmm. And then there's only three ports that even have access to your machine. Then you turn around and install fail the ban. Fail the ban just looks at your logs and you set it. You set these things, they call them jails, and you set these filters and you tell it to, hey, look at SSH logs. And then you, you know, look for X amount of attempts in there and you can have hard bands and soft bands and all this and that where it just blocks things. There's WordPress plugins, Drupal modules and all this and that that'll write back to your Apache logs, Nginx logs, whatever. Say every time somebody logs in with the wrong WordPress account. So then it blocks them at the firewall level and they're not even messing with your machine. They're not racing your resources, etc. I mean, it really can cut down a load quite a bit. And with fail to ban in particular, those jails, it comes with, if I, if my memory is right, because it's been a long time since I've even logged into mine, um, the jails, you know, it's got several of them that are pre-configured for things like Apache and Nginx that it just, it knows how to look at those logs as long as you just say, here's where they are. Yeah, it just most of them aren't turned on though. I mean, when you install fail to ban, even if you say enable fail to ban service, none of the jails are active. You still have <laughs> yeah. to make sure you... I, I, I have to put that disclaimer. That's another one of those disclaimers I, I've seen the hard way when I've suggested it to people. They come back six months later. I've never seen any of these emails. You go, I'll take a look at your server. <laughs> oh, sorry. I guess I forgot that step where you have to <laughs> manually specify. Chris, like uh, you had mentioned changing your SSH port to something in the 2000s. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that point? Oh, sure. Historically, I mean, most services we use, uh, you know, anything on TCP, or anything using an IP address comes in on a port, right? 80 for HTTP, 443, 1025 is SMTP. Uh, MySQL is 3306. You know, they, they all had these standard ports, most of which historically were under the number 2000. So most scanners historically, and I, you know, I gotta be honest, I don't know if it's still true where the scanners really start looking, but a lot of the end maps and a lot of the normal scanning that's done, just looking for open ports on a machine, just scans one through 2000, because there's a whole host of services that can be exploitable if they're there mm -hmm. in that range. So one of the yeah, first that's... things I typically do is is switch, take any SSH port I'm using and up, and up it well over, you know, to a really high port number that I know is unlikely to be around another service. Mm -hmm. And, and right. that's ICANN's fault for anybody who cares to be interested. <laughs> they they are the ones who aside, and I mean I, I say fault. Well, you know it has to be done, but they're the ones who have kind of set up that standard of here are your registered ports. You know whether that's you know eighty four forty three twenty five. You know any of these twenty twenty two. Um, those have all been assigned by them so that all the machines knew how to talk to each other basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and then anything over, I think it, it runs up to like, you know, 1024 or something like that are the ones that they've registered and anything over that is then just fair game, I guess. Historically. Anyway. Yeah. And of course this has changed now, right? Memcached is, uh, 
11 211. My sequel is 3306. There are others up there, but I still like, I mean, if I look through logs, I see very little scanning going on in the, anything over 2000 still. Yeah. If, if someone's going to be scanning, if they have, you know, a blanket list of IP or just like a, a, a mask of IPs, they're going to be scanning and they're going to be scanning a whole bunch of ports. Like it gets, it's a multiplicatively increasing thing. You know, you have 2000 ports across. You say uh, four thousand IP addresses. That's what eight million, right? Eight million uh, different scans. Yes, I can. Do that. <laughs> I finished my beer. I can't do math anymore. <laughs> so, like, that's eight million different port scans that they have to do. And so, if yes, like they could just say that set their end map to scan above two thousand. But if you are in a crowd of other possible IP addresses, they're probably not going to do that because they'll probably find someone else who does does have something open lower than 2000. It's like that whole thing like I don't have to be faster than the tiger, I just have to be faster than you. Uh, that's there's a lot of truth to that. I'd be curious, I'd love to talk I, I have to ask Tony Perez from Security next time I see him if that's still the number the cutoff number if that's still a significant thing because the way attacks have evolved over the years. But that's always been one I think of those. it's a, Quick. If you're high, if you're high value target, they're going to do like a full band scan. You sure, know, exactly. They're gonna, and they're going to be a lot more targeted and thorough. But if they're just doing like a casting a broad net, <laughs> so the the key there is if you go in and reassigning port numbers and stuff is beyond the scope of what I think we care to tell you about. If you want to know how Google it, you'll find a, a tutorial on how you change your your ports for services. But if you want to do that, the other thing that dovetails in with that is using UFW, um, and you can straight up say, not only am I, you know, going to have SSH on port, you know, seven thousand twenty-one, but if you aren't from my IP address, mm -hmm. you also just can't get to it. Now, th the tricky thing about that is, a, of course, you have to know your IP address, and b, hope your IP address never changes. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a big caveat, and I think I think you can specify like a range of IP addresses. Yeah, you can you can yeah. do ranges if you're familiar with how, especially like if your ISP, you know, of course, is going to have a block, so yeah. you could narrow it down to say, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna allow only my IP, but I'm gonna trust that probably the other, you know, 256 on this uh, right. uh, range won't, or you know, you can go up a couple uh, uh, octets on that, so. Hmm. Just pay for a. I mean, if you know you have to do that, spend the three bucks a month on a, one of these VPNs that gives you a static IP. Yeah, yeah. And a, a lot of folks, like if you're doing it for work, your work is going to have. That's like a, most companies. That's how they do it. Is you know when they've got their VPN set up, it's set. It has a uh, an internal IP at that point, and because all your servers are behind the firewall. Exactly. That's all they let in. So even if you were on the network, you know, without being on the VPN, you couldn't get to their servers. Um, at least for us, I know that's how on, we work. So on the off chance that you do, like, like let's say that you set that up, and then either you lose the VPN configuration, or you forget what port you picked because you had it saved in your laptop and you just reimaged it or something. Most hosts will have a web-based console that you can log in through which is kind of like a little virtual console. I think it's a Java app. DigitalOcean has it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's terrible, but... It's good enough to get you around that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you're, if you're locked out, you can get in through that. 
and you can check your SSH settings and like set them to something more open so that you can then reconfigure it. For for Mac, just use terminal. For Windows, I use Putty. I like it. It works Putty's well. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about SSH just a hair more though, because that's uh, and if you don't know, SSH is how you talk to a headless server. You know, you work with your desktop all day. If you're somebody who spends all day in Photoshop and all that, you know, you're used to the whole GUI interface. Um, when you work on a server, that's still pretty much all text because it's happening remotely. And that's just the most efficient way to get data back and forth um, and, and do it with low latency. Secure. SSH is the secure connection that makes that possible. Um, and so when you set that up, that's, you know, when you type in your IP address, whether it's in the terminal, in the putty, whatever, and it comes up and it says, you know, who's logging in? And you type in root. And what's your password? And you type in root. <laughs> You're in for trouble. <laughs> Don't set your password to root. <laughs> Just warning you. So the, the, the reason I say that is you can configure SSH. And again, there are, well, and I, I promise I'm going to go through and look up specific tutorials on this stuff we're talking about. I'll make sure we leave links in the show notes. Um, you can lock down SSH to only allow keys, which is a good way to prevent just, you know, brute force password attacks. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is just trying to open up your SSH port and feed it a username and password, it won't even get the opportunity. It'll just be turned mm -hmm. away right then and there. Um, if you don't know how that works, learn. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually, that's, I would say that when we're talking about the trinity of web development with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, this is like part of the, the core things for doing DevOps is learn how SSH keys work because you're going to use them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan. I don't know what you guys use, but um, LastPass uh, I use for storing keys now. Mm -hmm. um, since I've moved between, I've got three different machines, four, four counting my phone, five counting my tablet that I need to use keys on. And LastPass is like all hail because that keeps my keys organized. And mm -hmm. again, not a, not a paid plug of any kind. I just use it and I like it. And it... Um, it helps keep that because the thing is you you store when you when you generate a key pair, you're going to get a private key and a public key. You put your public key everywhere that needs to know who you are. And then you send the private key when you log in. And it does uh, a handshake that without getting into how that happens, it's like mixing paint, so to speak. <laughs> figure out if uh, if the colors are what they are supposed to be without necessarily divulging what the starter colors were. It knows it's supposed to end up with green, basically. That's um, similar to the way SSL handshakes work. Um, but you store those, but you need to keep that private. That private key needs to stay with you on a thumb drive in LastPass, somewhere encrypted, wherever, because if you lose that private key, you lose your ability to log in, and you better hope that you have a means of getting back into it. it it's you be scary. Key for the win. <laughs> I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this question because Chris, I, I value your opinion greatly, which is why you're here. Um, so you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> Scotch isn't too bad, mind you. Um, I have had this conversation a few times with folks, and the answers I get are always interesting and never consistent. Um, you know, we we talk about and we impress upon people the process of using different passwords for all their services. Don't use one password. Because if you use one password and one service gets compromised, all of them get compromised. And yet we encourage people to use key pairs. And I feel like that isn't better. 
<laughs> it is and it isn't because remember, you know, a password is symmetrical. And the big difference between not having a thousand key pairs is they're asymmetrical, right? For let, let's back up here, probably to give some background, you, you mentioned keys a lot. A key in this case is we're talking about basically two sides of a password. You have one half that you have, one half that the server has, and only they only work in that combination. So you can use your password on anything, but unless it has that other exact matching copy, it's never going to work. And they're not interchangeable, so on and so forth. That asymmetrical difference for all practical purposes means you probably don't know. I mean, I, I'm paranoid. I have a separate key pair for pretty much every server I log into. This kind of goes with my nature. I'm actually looking at moving into GPG for a lot of us. You know, there's a gentleman by the name of Eric Mann, one of the people I respect most in this business. He works for a company called Tosney. But uh, he keeps doing a lot of tutorials and moving these all to YubiKeys. And now that I finally have a laptop where working USB ports, I can actually use these things, which are hardware <laughs> keys that'll store these. But then I'd basically be using one or two keys for most of my servers. And the more I read on this, there's it's yeah, that, that asymmetrical nature, really, there's not a whole lot of downside to it from a practical point of view. That, that's a way better use. metaphor than my paint one. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, gonna so, I'm gonna steal that for the future. Uh, fair enough. Just just to uh, clarify, a YubiKey is a USB dongle you plug in. It has a little button on it, and then it generates a super long string of alphanumeric characters. Well, which is basically one of the. It, it generates one of these keys in most cases, mm -hmm. or it can be used with a two factor. Like you know, when your bank sends you the six digit code, it can generate those codes. Right. But you can program them. I'll have to send you guys the links for the for the show notes on this. But Eric's had a great tutorial on using it with to replace SSH keys, which has a lot of benefits if handled right. They ex they expire. Mm -hmm. or you, it's, I mean, if you're doing it right, then what you do is you set an expiration date on your YubiKey or whatever, so it expires after you know a year or whatever, a year, two years, whatever is reasonable for what you, what your threat model is, and then you're only using one key. That if you ever lose it, the worst case is you still have your backdoors into your servers. You know that's the case with everything. You're changing. You, know, you lose your LastPass account. You got to change your thousand <laughs> servers. That, so there's always that one point of failure. The way we're practically keeping track of these keys these days. But having a YubiKey and using GPG and well PGP for uh, this type of authentication has a lot of benefits, and simply that they expire. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. I'll have to look. I have not heard of the the YubiKey, and I've heard of some similar stuff, but that's a I didn't know you could use it at, at like the SSH level. That's super cool. I'll there send was you that... guys the note the the link. I linked a really neat tutorial on that after this that you could play with with it it's kind of kind of fun to mess with yeah so awesome a few months back there was that equifax hack and i remember in the aftermath of that there was a lot of chatter in the security circles about things you should do immediately in case your social was a part of the breach and um one of the things was your irs and social security like the dot gov um they were recommending that you set up an account on both of them and enable two-factor authentication so that it requires Every time you want to log in, it sends you a text message. Um, you're probably not logging into it very often. <laughs> but um, it's a pain in the butt, and it sucks that we, we would even have to do things like that. But it's better than you know having your data compromised. 
Well, you know, I used one password, an alternative to LastPass, and I keep a vault that I don't let download on my computers for things like that, like social security and IRS mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Because, you know, we're talking about authentication. Well, think about it. Or your social security number in that, those cases are both authentication and identification. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> that, what, that, what will be wow. interesting there is the new system that Google and Facebook are working on. Um, we talked about it on a real-time overview episode, and now the name is flittering out of my head. But uh, <laughs> they're working on a new uh, biometric two-factor. Huh. I've seen it. I actually just use my YubiKey for both Facebook and, well, when I have to log, I, I try to avoid logging into Facebook, period, anymore. But yeah. for Google and Facebook and GitHub, all of them take YubiKey, so I just use those. Nice. That's cool. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I will enjoy sharing that with our listeners. That sounds awesome. Um, with SSH, the other side of this is um, when you set everything up, the first thing that happens is a root account gets made. And this is where every hacker movie ever has, you know, talked about how you get root and now you've got everything. And there's a reason for that because you get root, you get everything. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it gets generated because something has to get generated and you need to know what it is. Um, but one of the first things that any tutorial will tell you to do is to get rid of that root account lock or lock it down you can't get rid of it but you can make it inaccessible to anything outside of the box you can make it where it's not even allowed to log in you can't log in right. as root period you can't log in you can't do anything that except inside using the s mm -hmm. what they call the su command the super user command change um, the name of it for the love of god <laughs> change the name of it is always an option um and set up a separate account that's your name that's anything else and authorize it on sudo or whatever you want to use there so that it can execute the commands you want. But it then is sandboxed. Um, everything yeah. is logged within the servers automatically, usually on that. So if somebody does compromise that account, there should be a trail depending on how good your hacker is. But, um, you know, most people, I think, I, people don't understand. And I, I, you use the phrase, Chris, that I'll bring back up the threat models that come into play here. Um, folks think about hacking as this thing where a person sits behind a computer and is typing stuff into a machine and making another machine do something. Most 99% of hacking is automated. It's one machine just running a test against another machine. And if it passes, then it runs other tests until it stores something and then it leaves like, Almost no hacking involves a human being at this point because it's well, just not scalable. I I would contest that only on that social engineering is still a huge part of like the process of like security compromise. Targeted sure. attacks in general. Yeah. A targeted attack is often human directed. It's yeah. everything else that's different. It's but it's that's very one to one and people don't sure. scale. Human yeah. beings have no ability to scale so it's like one person is going to attack a machine whereas another machine can attack tens of thousands of machines in that same amount of time and you know you said that right i said rename root but no i mean the correct answer is don't allow root to log in you use a separate account so yeah yeah i've been doing it for so long i sometimes think of that as my root account when i name my other accounts but i mean that's that's part yeah any common denominator any it's horrible because it almost sounds like, and I get, in a lot of ways it is, it's security by obscurity, right? You're yeah. hiding something. Uh, but there's sometimes there was, 
reasons to use that on the very most basic level. Um, uh, Dave, Dave Kennedy, he's a, a big name in the InfoSec community. Um, he was the keynote at AnyCon last year and out in Albany. I was fortunate enough to see that. And he was saying that 95% of the compromises, and I, he didn't qualify this statistic, so, but 90, most of this, the compromises that happen are unsigned, executable, executable, downloaded from the internet. So like stuff like malicious code that's been injected into something that you execute after downloading it. Um, so if you if you if you're a sysadmin, and this is kind of out of scope for this talk, but if you're sysadmin, like don't allow your users to run unsigned executables from the internet, and that's like the most of your things right there. We can't even use USB drives on our machines at work. Huh. Now that's because like we have like federal level security stuff that we have to comply with as a company because of some of our clients. But yeah, like they've our machines are hard locked down. Which is funny because the ones I have at work, they have lockdown software, but then they don't allow up like security updates and various things on the Mac. So I want to do a lot of my work with my personal machine because A, I can access things, but B, it's actually more secure than the work machine they give me. <laughs> my machine got reported back to our IT staff because I was running, uh, uh, I think it was Zamp or something like that, just a, <laughs> uh, an Apache server because I'm a web developer. I need a local... Yeah. environment sometimes but because it was not an approved executable hmm. yeah. our vpn when i have to do vpn you know when i everything's accessible for vpn and I, of course i work remotely i'm three hours from campus and every time i look stack overflow is always flagged as adult content <laughs> uh, the list goes on and on and on so that's a little bit about ssh anyway there's yeah. there's a whole lot more to <laughs> it there's other things there's yeah, there's there's a lot that goes into that, but that is because that is the front door of your server for most things. Um, it's important to learn it and understand it a little bit, and and I say we'll include some extra resources there. Um, the the last thing I want to touch on before I need to go refill my glass and and get some more ice because I need some water mixed in with this. Uh, it may not be the greatest <laughs> scotch, but it does the job. Let me tell you, uh, SSL. Now, even though SSL is it kind of Actually, it's it's the perfect transition element because it's it's server related, but it's also you know web app related and things like that. Um, one of the draws to shared hosting oftentimes is that they offer like a free you know free SSL certificate um, because they've just wild carded it to their root machine or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and it, that's great because it used to be getting a signed SSL certificate it's expensive. was expensive. Expensive, yeah. It was yeah. a and it was a. It was hard to do. It was not a mm -hmm. user-friendly process. You need to go like VeriSign or something, right? VeriSign, Komodo, any of these folks. Yeah. Um, you go in, you know, you have to put in server information, your information. You get these files. You're like, I don't know what to, where, where do I put these files? How do I link <laughs> them to stuff? You definitely make put them in the wrong order and everything blows up. <laughs> right. uh, and SSL, for anybody who, again, this is, I know we have uh, some listeners who are getting into this stuff. The SSL is the thing that makes the HTTPS green on Chrome. <laughs> when you yeah. see the word secure up there, SSL is the thing that helps cloak the information that you are sending to the website so that when you send a handshake to that site, it knows who you are, you know who it is, it knows that you're both the same people, and it locks everything down within that tunnel. So in theory... <laughs> right your stuff is relatively cloaked. Now that doesn't mean your ISP can't tell what your, you know, 
getting at or what type of data you're getting. Maybe not the contents of the data, but they can mm -hmm. tell the types. Um, and, you know, because packet shaping and stuff comes into play there. Um, but it it helps ensure that because when you make a form submission, let's say a basic for contact form, something super mm -hmm. simple, and you click that send button. If there's anything in that transmission circuit, whether that's malicious or it's just a router with really aggressive logging, your stuff gets logged in plain text. <laughs> if you have SSL, it's just a payload at that point. Yeah. Um, and all they can see is that data got sent, and the, but the data itself is obscured that way. So it's not just about like a hacker. It's just about somebody seeing something that you don't want them to see. You know, you don't want your bank account balance being seen by a third party router somewhere out in the middle of your connection. Um, so what specifically these days, it's you're, you're sitting in Starbucks. You don't want yeah. to th three or four years ago, there was a Firefox extension called FireSheep. And this is what really started the big SSL certificate when Facebook's Twitter and everybody started enforcing it. It was a Firefox extension I could install that would give me a sidebar. And if I was on an open Wi-Fi, you know, unencrypted a Wi-Fi, I didn't have to put a password in. It would pop up with everybody around me. You know, somebody with the Facebook, it would pop up with Facebook. I click on it, now I'm there, them on Facebook. SSL is the one that blocks all that from happening. It wraps everything between my user and me and my server. So if if you're not if you're accessing a website over regular HTTP, like so not with S, not SSL, um, you can get uh, you can go on Amazon. You can get an external network adapter with Wi-Fi. Um, I I have one. It's an Alpha. I forget the exact model number, um, but you can put it in promiscuous mode, which means you can just sniff all the traffic that's flying around you through the air, like in the Willy Wonka movie, and um, and you can just you can just listen to that, and you can see come stuff come through in plain text. If it's going over SSL, then it's encrypted, and you can't just view it. But if it's not, you can you know grab the images right out of the air. You can grab you know usernames, passwords, whatever else, right right out of the you air. Guys, you guys both probably played with Wireshark at some point, right? Yep. Yeah. That, I was just going to say a pineapple too is yeah. The in some ways a classic for the script kiddies, if you will. <laughs> so. SSL is important. And now there's also been a lot of, you know, talk in the last, what, two years about how now Google is, you know, factoring SSL into PageRank and, uh, you know, the, the notification in Chrome, in Firefox, noting whether or not a site is secure and now how they are aggressively noting unsecure sites. It used to be like if your mm -hmm. site was not using SSL, they're just, it just didn't do anything. It just, yeah. showed you know it, it showed secure but it didn't do anything if it was unsecure now they're flagging it as not secure um so ssl has a lot of benefits even if you're just low level if you're using user data and i'm gonna invoke the phrase and then take a drink but G if you've got anything gdpr related <laughs> at all if you take an email a name you have a reason to have at least a little bit of cloak wrapped around that yeah. pipeline. Even um, before that, I mean, just your user's privacy. If you have a one-page web app, I mean, most coffee shop, you know, co you know, if I wanted to know who's applying to what job, sit in a local coffee shop in a small, mm -hmm. in a small town, and it'd be easy to pull all that data right out. If, if you're, you're just you're protecting your user's privacy. 
if your users are submitting anything at all other than requesting content from your site, like you should probably be doing SSL with, with like let's at least let's encrypt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so boom, magic words because that is what has changed the game for SSL. And I know there are a lot of people who have a lot of bad things to say about let's encrypt, um, and they have valid complaints about you know the way people are you know able to scam it you know since it's all automated whatever. Mm-hmm. But for all of its failings, it also is granting a huge advantage to people running legitimate sites and needing to have that secure layer. You know, Let's Encrypt's magic is two things. One, it's a free certificate, but that's the easy part. CertBot is really the magic of Let's Encrypt. Yeah. The certificate itself is trivial. Yeah. A certificate's a certificate. 4,096-bit encryption is... 4096 bit encryption, regardless if it's Komodo or who, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a, a green star shows your name certificate. The encryption is the same. It's that cert bot where you can just go out and literally cert bot or let's, you know, my, I go to my server, cert bot renew. Everything's taken care of. Done. <laughs> it's so nice. <laughs> it, yep. it has taken what used to take half an hour, an hour of work and distilled it down to like four commands. So, like, imagine imagine what you might think as a listener that a crappy car is. Just imagine a crappy car, whatever that may be. I'm not going to name a make and model here. <laughs> whatever you think of a crappy car, that's Let's Encrypt. Kia Soul. Sure. So, you got, you're a hamster and you need a car. Get a Kia Soul, right? It's not, it's not a Cadillac. It's not a Ferrari. It's not, like, it's not the best, but it gets you to where you're going. And, and that's... But how is it not the? I mean, what what difference does paying for a certificate make? Because the things Michael was mentioning earlier, it's there's because I, I think because you don't have the third party involvement from like a Verisign or a a, a trusted third party. And but, but there's not a cert. You know, that's list, let's encrypt is the cert authority that Verisign is. So for the mm-hmm. cheap, the nine dollar. $10 a year, whatever it is, Veris, I think they're nine ninety five. if you look at GoDaddy and most of them. That is wow. literally the same certificate, which huh. is a different signer as Let's Encrypt. The difference is entirely in the technology of how it's delivered. Yeah. Hmm. Then that, that's why I say CertBot such a such the magic key. And that's where a lot of people don't like it. CertBot makes it too easy. There's no knowledge required at all. Let's Encrypt, install, <laughs> okay. get Cert. You, know, you don't have to go online and type, but you still have to type in your name, your email address, and the basics for, to get the cert. But there's no verification on a normal cert. It's only when you go to a bank and you see the name of a cert in there. There's different trust levels, but those are $200, $300 certificates. And, and if you need that verification, you're still I think paying. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was talking about, just maybe not using the right words. Um, let's not forget, though, the irony of this part of the discussion, because... Uh, wasn't it Trustico uh, a few months back that had like 23,000 SSL certs compromised? And did just <laughs> like, listen, we can't trust any of these certificates anymore. And Trustico won't answer our emails. So we're just posting all the private keys now. So they have no choice. Yes. <laughs> so the idea that paying for a certificate makes it better is just patently false. It's, you know, it's a belief, but. There is just nothing that makes that true. And well, when you button. do pay, well, the, 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 that's not entirely true because when you're talking about verification, you're talking yeah. about you want to verify. It was, encryption is one thing. 
Verification is another. If you want to pay $300 to be verified, that's different. Now you're sending incorporation documents, driver's license photos, all kinds of verification documents back to the signer, VeriSign, Komodo. Let's Encrypt doesn't even offer that level of verification. Mm -hmm. You have to send that to one of those services and come back. And then you, you know, then you don't just get the secure in Chrome, but it actually tells you the name in green letters next to it, right? But right. that's a whole level, different level. And same certificate still, but the verification on the certificate is a different level. Yeah, and that's if that's what you need, you don't need to listen to our episode. Probably, <laughs> yeah, probably should go. Yeah, I tell you what, I need to get some more eyes. So, guys, let's take about uh, 40, 45 seconds here. Uh, we'll come back afterwards, and we'll start talking a little bit about the website uh, of the security stuff. And uh, yeah, let's do that. Brilliant. Sounds good. Yep. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Are you trying to build a case around an interactive map for your school, city, or business? NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. Their team of professional cartographers specialize in map illustrations and are ready to design a rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all your users' devices with responsive maps that scale and blend in seamlessly with your website. Visit them online to request a demo at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. So I guess my end result here, or my decision is that, okay, Spayburn 10, not a great scotch. Not terrible. I've had worse. Um, I've had much worse. Um, it's not entirely bad. It's not a bad scotch. Um, it's the Kia Soul of Scotch. <laughs> the Kia Soul of Scotch. Um, and it does get the job done. So uh, let's see how many more mistakes I can make before the night. So. Uh, yeah, so continuing the discussion. So we talked a little bit about servers and just kind of what you should be thinking about. And um, let's let's be honest we basically gave you a lot of stuff to go google later hopefully and we'll, we'll have links to a lot of those in the show notes as well so maybe we can save you that much but a lot of it is going to require you to go out read some stuff look at some commands and and understand how these things work that's cool we're going to do more of that now but we're going to talk more about the the web application layer so once you get into apache and you are making a website what has to happen there above the server so to speak um, in the atmosphere of the server to keep your stuff secure. Um, and this is where, again, take a drink. If you do anything that involves something that may be impacted by GDPR, there's a huge amount of emphasis on that part of security because if, and all the stuff we talked about in the first half of the show, all of that is about preventing a breach to begin with. Because if you are compromised, under GDPR, if that applies to you, you've got 72 hours to disclose that breach. Ideally, we want to prevent that that event from ever happening. Um, the server is one layer, but then the application is another layer. So that's what we're going to look at. And the most basic intrinsic type of attack is sort of this injection. Uh, and, you know, we, we can argue, too, over whether injection or, or cross-site scripting is sort of more basic, but I, I put injection, injection as the first bullet point in my notes. So that's all the injection. Oh, really, cross-site scripting is a type of injection, right? I mean, in all practical purposes. 
I you, won't argue that. Your I, what, what Michael's talking with injection uh, would be like URL injection. Um, if you've ever looked at a URL, it'll have like a question mark sometimes, and then it'll have like a word and then an equal sign and then some other words or numbers. It's doing stuff where you're messing with the stuff after the question mark, and there's but, different techniques that you can do. Well, it's not even. It might be that it might be a form. You know, putting a the right kind of commands and forms. I mean, let's, let's let's back up a little bit. I mean, if we're going to talk about application security, we probably should sh- give a shout out to OWASP and the OWASP top 10. Mm-hmm. The OWASP is the Open Web Application Security Project. And every three years, it was four for the last one. They come up with the 10 most uh, prominent vulnerabilities in web application security. Things like injection, XSS, CSRF, uh, mis- security misconfiguration. I uh, you, you guys will have the link. I think it's already in the show note doc that you gave me before this. I threw the link for that in there. But so as we're talking about, you know, there's a couple that Mike's already mentioned, but they're really all coming out of this OWASP top 10 is the biggest things to worry about. Mm-hmm. And the real watch there is trying to keep somebody from running code that isn't supposed to be running, which at its heart is really an injection. The whole point of an injection is not running code that, were, that, you're, that you didn't intend to historically with when we talk injection that means not running it within the server there's the old xkcd drop tables cartoon right <laughs> I, I mean I feel like somebody i saw recently had something like that like, as a username oh yeah that's my, that my, my twitter no. username is drop table users or no it's dash dash drop table users yeah Aaron, aaron's twitter uh twitter tag or twitter name is a injection attempted injection attack so apparently twitter's watched out for that <laughs> yeah. And I do think that with that, that note was this idea of working, trying to push data into something that shouldn't be there. So whether that's a form, a URL, some kind of input, because websites, whether it's a search form, a login form, a data submission form, a help ticket form, a contact form, um, they take in information and one of we I mentioned earlier that you know most hacking is by a computer, but and while injection testing can absolutely be automated, a lot of that does come at the human level too of somebody just trying to see. I want to see if I can get into their site, and they feed in to these kinds of uh, commands. Where and there's um, there's a site, and now I don't remember the name off the top of my head that lists like. And it's a top 10 kind of list, like what OWASP does, and but it lists them as uh, like database commands that people will try to put into form fields hmm. because they are trying to see if when that, whatever that form sends to, if it'll hit that string and do something weird. Yeah. Uh, and also what you're talking about too is a type of injection called remote execution vulnerability. Really, in other words, you're trying to run code. You're trying to get the server to run code. You're trying to get the host or the server that has the website on to, to run code as an injection, right? Drop tables in the database. In other words, delete all your database tape, whatever it might be. But then uh, it's one of those distinctions. I, I'm, I'm always, I've been corrected. Uh, Tony Perez from Security, every time I give this talk, I actually, I, I've given about half a dozen times a, a, <clears throat> basically a break, quick breakdown for WordPress developers on the OWASP top 10. And every time he sees it, he goes, you know, uh, XSS is an injection, or this is an injection. Like I know, but I'm trying to differentiate between <laughs> a, a problem that doesn't, you know, 
so shout out to Tony there that I've, I've finally taken his advice tonight. But uh, uh, no, in all seriousness, though, I mean, that is what we're trying to prevent. We're trying to, by, by injection, we're simply running code that we didn't want run. So I have, I have a, it, it's embarrassing, but it happened long enough that I can laugh about it. One of the first web applications I ever made was a rudimentary content management system. This is like shortly before WordPress came out or like right around when WordPress 1.0 was out maybe. So it was a really long time ago. And there was a basic, you know, login system. It was using MySQL in the back end, PHP in the front end. Anyways, um, one of my friends worked in a different IT department within the same organization. And he, uh, after I left, he's like, hey, did you know you had an SQL injection vulnerability on your app? And I was like, what do you mean? And apparently if you put in the username field, um, dash dash, or no, if you did uh, uh, or one equals one semicolon, uh, and then that was it, then it would log you in as the first user, which happened to be the admin user. That That is an old school trick too. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was embarrassing. But in my defense, it was my first web app. And yeah. And yeah. So I can send you my old code that's just as bad. I, I, yeah. I get that. <laughs> but, but, sure, I'm using code somewhere that probably has some yeah. kind of thing just like that. And it's this is where, like, to prevent those kinds of injection things, whatever language is your language of choice. If you are a database programmer, <clears throat> learn, you know, the, the what is it, MySQL real escape string. If you're a PHP mm-hmm. developer, it's, I think, filter there. Um, mm-hmm. JavaScript just has an escape function. All of these languages come with a function built in that is designed to escape characters and by escaping the characters it means that when it gets to whatever processor you're using whatever uh, system is, is going through that code it will treat it like a string character as opposed to a code character i'm probably using the wrong definitions for those words but sanitize early escape late Was if you're a wordpress a- developer uh or if you work in WordPress, WordPress has its whole library of its own for both escaping and sanitization. And if you install the WordPress coding standards in your editor or IDE, it'll tell you right on the line, hey, you've got a CSRF vulnerability right here. You've got an XSS vulnerability right here. And it'll tell you, hey, you didn't escape this line. Gigo, garbage in, garbage out. Garbage out. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, you, if you're taking anything without paying attention to what it is, that's a problem. Uh, and it's an easy, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, it's not something I want to slap somebody on the wrist for necessarily. That's an easy mistake to make if you just don't know, um, you know, and like with Aaron, you know, the yeah. first thing you write, it's easy to make those mistakes and not think about how if if that variable drops into code, what does that mean? Especially if it's deep, you know, a function calls a function calls a function and you're just not thinking about, well, that double quote is going to actually get interpreted and then terminate a command early because yes. what what this gets to and and uh chris like you were saying you know somebody puts it in to try to make the server execute code what they're really looking for is for the server to do something that isn't expected whether that's spit out html into a page that it shouldn't do or make a javascript alert pop up on the page when if i do a search Search should not pop up a JavaScript alert, but if I search for, you know, script alert one and it does it, then I know, oh, the server is doing something there where it's treating that like actual code. 
Um, and then you got an XSS vulnerability if it's running back in the browser, right? Right. Then we XSS for all practical purposes, cross-site scripting, and for all practical purposes, it's running code that you didn't want to on the client. You're that, causing the browser to run code. Then we uh, get into a type two reflective attack. <laughs> are you, my favorite story with that is WordPress. I think it was 4.4. The, the WordPress that allowed emojis and comments, right? Oh. Do, do, do either of you know how, why they allow emojis and WordPress comments? I do not. Why WordPress used to use UTF-8, and UTF-8 has issues in MySQL where you can basically cut off, you put in the right command, it'll cut it off, and then it'll continue it in the next comment. And that could be exploited. I, I don't remember all the technicals of it. There's a loop conference video from Nason that explains for an hour and a half why it took them a year and a half <laughs> to patch uh, this vulnerability, which in the end was switching the type of collation used in the WordPress database tables. And as a side effect, it allowed emojis. So they had this big, huge WordPress release that allowed emojis, which the reality was you could leave half of a comment with one half of the command, the other half of the comment with the other half of the JavaScript. Now your linters aren't going to catch it. Your sanitization might not catch it that way. Spits back out. It all gets spin, spun back together. And, oh, shit, now you got a good XSS attack. Oh. <laughs> That's evil. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I have to give credit to the people that figure out that kind of stuff. I mean, that takes a special mind. That took the some of the smartest guys at WordPress, Pento, Nason, and those guys. I think it was about a year and a half to find a good way to, you know, it's not just patching it. It's patching it so you don't break half the freaking internet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good segue from injection to XSS. So there are, I say, Two, but I guess their OWASP in particular, I think I, I uh, recognizes three XSS three. attacks: type one, type two, and what they call a type zero. Which that's the one. Like I don't get the type zero entirely, but we'll see if we can hash it out here in the next few minutes. So type one is the persistent attack. It's doing something. So like a comment, if I enter a comment on your website that gets stored in the database, and then every time somebody visited visits that page. It loads the information from the, the website's database, that then runs some kind of code. So every time it happens, the, the user has to do nothing. They just visit the page and they get attacked. Um, reflective is when you put something in a URL. So you figure out, well, the search box is executing code. So if I send somebody a link that says query equals script do a bunch of stuff, and I run it through bit.ly, this was, you know, the reason why people would get emails, spam emails with lots of bit.ly links. It's because they were hiding reflective attacks inside those links. So you click it, you end up on the site and the site looks, you know, either normal. Maybe it doesn't look normal. Maybe it looks like PayPal. Maybe it looks like anything. Um, and then this type zero is what they're calling a DOM attack, which executes a <laughs> command. At the, and Chris, it sounds like you understand what I'm getting at here. So correct me here if I'm wrong, but it, it executes code at the server level in the DOM, but then removes it before it gets to the client side. What? I don't think it always has to remove it. A DOM attack is you're modifying the DOM. So the attack's going to be spit out. So in other words, it's, you know, uh, reflected is typically targeting an error page, right? Or a search page or something that's, that's stateless. Yeah. You're, you're, there's no state. You're not carrying it forward from page to page. 
Uh, a DOM attack is typically targeting a, a standard page, but it's modifying something within there to display it. Uh, the, would, the challenge to me with this is what, the, understanding the difference between a DOM attack and a persistent attack. And yeah. I'll be honest, I'm. It, it's been a few years since I was targeting yeah. that stuff. I don't worry about it in those terms. I worry about the difference between reflected and persistent because obviously that just if you have persistent, you need to look at your database and clean that shit out. Pardon my French. Yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I had and literally what yesterday, um, Chris? Why would uh, you curse on our show? <laughs> damn it! Now I have to mark right. the episode explicit. Thanks a lot, man. Now <laughs> nobody's gonna listen. Um, hey. No, I had a one of my Twitter followers. Uh, uh, Brendan, uh, who I won't I won't call out your last name just in case, but Brendan <laughs> sent me a tweet and said, dude, I was looking up one of your tag manager articles and this came up and sent me a screenshot and there was a big old butt, right? <laughs> like it was a one of those uh ad you know deals, but like the very first article just had a big old butt in the thong. And it was a, a WP VCD um malware. And huh. I went back and looked because it wasn't I knew like my blog and so here you go at, to the internet. My blog is running an older theme that hasn't been updated in, in ages. Um, and I thought, well, maybe it's time to change. But I got looking. I'm like, no, it's not my theme. It turned out I had set up a site, just a little compartmentalized site a couple years ago for a conference that I was giving a presentation at. And so I made up a sandbox site and forgot about it. But oh. that site had an exploit in the theme. And because it was running on the same server. So remember what we were saying about shared hosting earlier, you compromise one theme because it's all, they're all at their own directory, but they're all on the same level running at the same permission level. They were able to then execute code that injected information into my site's theme so that anybody who visited it got fed this other information. So that was a persistent attack at that point. So um, when they I were loading JavaScript I, at my level because it was stored in my files. And that's the that's the way typically with WordPress and a lot of the, co the modern content management systems, they're doing it. You know, we say persistent as if it's stored in the database. It's very rare that I've cleaned a site where it's stored, something stored in post content or something in the database. It's it's stored throughout. I've gone in sites where there are thousands of files, each with the same yeah, I, have, I, I don't distinguish between stored in a database and stored in a file at that point. Yeah, I, I, I only do it for the sake of... Easier to clean if it's on the file system. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, I When I was at IU, we had, uh, we had a, our first pass at doing student blogs. We had a compromise happen. And um, it went for probably a few weeks without us noticing it because it was so cleverly targeted it would use um ie conditionals to target specifically i think ie5 maybe ie6 and the my me and the other developer we only developed in firefox so it never came up for us and it didn't come up for most of my coworkers who all were using the most recent version of ie which i think was 7 at the time but we got a couple emails from someone who was using a very old version of ie and um it, it came up for them and it was I forget what it showed but it was a bunch of spam links or something um, yeah <laughs> so I would be remiss though in talking about all of this without talking about WordPress for a minute so we've got Chris here 
he is the grandfather of WordPress security. Let me fluff his ego a little bit. Um, I'm not <laughs> I know sure fluffed my ego is calling me old. I don't know. <laughs> that could also be true. Maybe maybe I have something against you. You don't know. I got three um, more weeks in the fifth, fifth decade, so give me a break here. <laughs> well, isn't WordPress celebrating its like 15th anniversary this week? Yeah, think, right? in fact, uh, you know, I got the shirt going and everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do. Oh, oh, I want that shirt. I'm going to, I need to find one of them. You um, can buy it off their website. <laughs> I don't want to buy it. I want somebody to give it to me. <laughs> I'm cheap. I run I run a podcast out of my wallet. <laughs> I can't buy insurance. So I I and the reason I think it's this is a super valuable topic is because what you built addresses a lot of those real sort of high-level application level things that you should think about doing. Things like changing the default admin password we talked about this with ssh and root and the same is true for wordpress you install wordpress you install drupal you install joomla you install typo3 do people still use typo3 i don't know but <laughs> all of these systems you know they install an admin user to get you started but then there's an admin user that has user id one which why they haven't put in scripts that just randomize the name and id of those i don't know but they do um you know, randomizing table prefixes, um, changing, you know, checking and changing file permissions, changing directory paths, um, obfuscating login points. Um, so the first question I want to ask is what got you interested in saying, I want to build a security plugin for WordPress? Well, at the time it was, I mean, I was working for a university, I was working for Southern Illinois University in aviation and WordPress was a good you know, it was, most of our sites were Drupal. Our main site was Drupal. And WordPress was great for, you know, a multi-site. It was actually WordPress MU at that point. Excuse me. Before multi-site was in core. And uh, it was great to allow students, not students, but, you know, student groups, faculty, and that to have their own sites. But I had, like, 20 security plugins going. I'm like, well, this is crazy because one would update and another one would break. You know, that kind of jazz. So I started putting together one of my own. And that's why it got that started. But like you say, it was, it was all about best practices, you know, force password changes. Uh, a lot of things that are completely obsolete now, like changing the database prefix, you know, hiding the login area. There's there's a joke, J Jeff Rowe, Jeff Chandler from WP Tavern still refers to me as the asshole because of that one. <laughs> I don't know anything about that joke. Uh, the, the, the running joke is I'm an asshole and what, when we tried to release, because that feature was so stupidly complicated, when we did our first release with iThemes, we had huge, we had three or four hundred beta testers. Nobody noticed it was thoroughly broken. <laughs> I, I estimated when I started going back through logs and tickets, it probably crashed about ten thousand sites, like completely. Oh my god! Oh god! <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was it was bad, it, and it took us a good week to really get that feature patched. But people love the feature. I kept wanting to pull it out, and people were like, no, because it doesn't do a damn thing. <laughs> but it was God, there. I'm such an asshole, Chris. I was at a WordCamp uh, Miami, and first time I met Chandler in real life, I'm talking to a bunch of guys. He walks up, and he goes, so you're that asshole who crashed all those websites. <laughs> who the hell are you? <laughs> uh, hey, what can I do? With, that's with great fame comes great responsibility. <laughs> Yeah, so, my bad code didn't crash my own site. It just crashed everybody else's. Great. <laughs> but 
you still though i mean the, the tool itself though was inspired and obviously had a huge amount of value in in taking care of you know security issues at the wordpress level that the, the app itself does not deal with and a lot of those are things you're automating you or when you built it you were you designed it to automate processes that much like setting up your server you can do on your own and i think that's true for whether you're using wordpress uh, you know we you know drupal keeps coming up whatever um whatever system you're building or using or if you are building one don't use admin as your admin <laughs> user don't use id1 as your main user you know these are things you know make sure the right directories are writable make sure that you are and they're reading. not the wrong the right the wrong directories aren't writable or maybe it's the right directories aren't writable too right right yeah or files you know make sure your config yeah. files aren't publicly writable um you know make sure they have the right users assigned to them you wrote that to make that easy and that's you know we like we were talking about certbot and part of the magic of certbot is that it makes that process of getting that certificate easy and deploying it easy there's nothing that it does that a normal person can't do. It just saves you having to research it and learn it. But learning that stuff, there is a huge amount of value in sitting down and understanding, okay, I'm installing this plugin to do all this workload, but I could also save myself a whole lot of execute time and things if I just change this stuff myself. Yeah. And I want to stress to folks that they should look at that as a stepping so stone, not a solution. Mm. Uh, because there's still ways to get around it. Yeah, I, that's just it, exactly. It was, I mean, the idea of the plugin was originally enforcing best practices. I mean, there was a couple of features in there. You know, we worked for a university that had night flight, was an aviation program. So the student workers at night tended to put parties on the various websites in WordPress. So there was a feature in better WP security, still an iTheme security for away mode, where you can set the hours where nobody's allowed to log in and update anything. So for an, <laughs> which for an office can come in really handy for that type of attack huh. but and look you know i call it an attack it was our own students but it's that Still legitimately crazy. isn't an attack you're well, somebody's it, using the site the way they shouldn't i was just gonna say that yeah you're, but, you're well, doing was, you're using it some the way you're not supposed to yeah what was the phrase you used threat model Th exactly our threat <laughs> model was our own students in some cases and i don't mean like they, they were bad people let, let me phrases let you know I, disclaimer they were all good people they had a neat way to tell all the rest of the students that were out that night where the party was. So they did. <laughs> but that gets frowned upon by those above them and those in charge. And so I'm, stop it. And I'm sure other platforms have tools that are just as good and equivalent in terms of, of doing those same functions. I'm not as familiar with those, so I can't speak to them, whether, you know, Drupal, if I haven't said that word enough now, you know, I, I don't know what the tool is there because I avoid Drupal like the plague. I've been burned by it on too many version updates. So, yeah. um, but I don't want to end the episode before we talk a little bit about Red Team. Um, I think that's something that we need to hit on in terms of you know what you can learn and how to how to get more skills in this area. So the the episode so far we've been doing Blue Team, which is defense. It's like DevOps and server admin and everything. It's preventative. It's learning how to defend your your targets against attackers. But red team is the opposite. That's the attacking side. When, and when I, did I, we switch from blue team, red team, or from white hat, black hat to red team, blue team? When I don't that... know. I don't know, but I have a book 
that is called the RTFM Red Team Field Manual. And it's like a skinny little, maybe 100 page book. And it's got all these different, like, uh, easy bake commands and other things, a quick reference for like Windows, Linux, Mac, et cetera. But it's RTFM. You like, like, read the manual. The last CERT <laughs> course I did on pen testing, I, I never heard the term red team used in it. That was a year and a half ago. So <laughs> I, I, well, I, I hear it a lot in the InfoSec groups. I, I do a, a monthly meetup and they use it a lot. But yeah, I see um, it a lot in, in social. I just don't see it too much in yeah groups and things like that. I don't know when we started using it. Um, what, it would be is, the equivalent of Black Hat, though. What yeah. What is our our term that we want to to tag this with? Is it InfoSec? Is it OpSec? Is it WebSec? What's the uh, proper term for the general web security area? InfoSec or WebSec, I think either one, because there's an awful lot of DevOps covered in there, right? Which is traditional InfoSec. Yeah. WebSec, when we start getting to the application level. Well, actually, I, I said a minute ago that Black Hat was similar to Red Team. I don't think that's actually correct. Uh, like yeah. white, white Hat is both Red and Blue Team. Black Hat would be Red Team, but with perhaps malicious intent. Red, or, black, white are, are intent. Red, red, blue are direction. Which side you're on? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think that in order to understand better how to defend against things, it's good to know how to attack with them. And um, in the show notes, I'll put a couple links to um, volnhub.com, which has a bunch of like uh, ready-made virtual machines you can download, and then you can attack to your heart's content without running any risk of uh, legal recourse or anything because you're running a server you're running the server on your own machine um, so you can batter the heck out of it and then hackthebox.eu is a free VPN lab you can connect to that gives you different machines you can try to attack and compromise and secure root access or elevated privileges at least um, the the catches with hack the box to get a invitation you actually have to do some clever uh like there's no invite link directly you have to find it and i'm, I'm not going to disclose how to do that because that's sort of like <laughs> the are you ready to to do this stuff if you can't solve this simple puzzle you won't be able to solve the things inside of it um i i, I am a member of it i'm not great at infosec but i am i do know that much <laughs> no I, I the first rule of fight club right yeah, and second, <laughs> if you want to, and if you if you're looking for a path that it is a little more traditional, it doesn't require problem solving up front. There's always the SANS courses, SANS.org. If you can afford them, <laughs> if you can afford them, or, or I mean, your if you're a web, I was gonna say, if you're a web developer and you get any kind of personal development, there's some neat courses in there for pen testing and other things. There and there's, there's two things that I think are relevant, Aaron, to what you're talking about, which mm -hmm. is. One, yes, you're totally right. It's hard to learn defense if you don't know offense. Uh, and two, I would absolutely go out, find yourself a friend and say, hey, see if you can get into my box. Try to break it. But I want to make sure to throw a very important caveat here. Depending on who your host is, make sure you either sub in, uh, submit a support ticket, <laughs> ask, check what their penetration testing I would rules say just and restrictions are. Play it safe and don't have your friend attack your box if it's not hosted on your personal computer that you can physically touch you, on a well, local network. 
like yeah. and WP Engine um has this policy that because um my uh RCSO had asked about this because mm-hmm. they were wanting to bring in a third party like a security audit mm-hmm. service and they wanted to ask about that and like WP Engine they have a you submit a ticket and they will move your site into a specially housed area where it can be tested so a lot of these hosts whether it's DigitalOcean, WP Engine, a managed host, whatever, it's worth looking because a lot of them do say it's okay to do it. You just have to let them know. When, uh, when I was interesting. Okay. When I was at Cornell, we um, we hosted our primary domains on AWS, and we had to do occasional like uh, scanning. I think we use Rapid Seven, um, just like you know the standard battery, and uh, you have to let AWS know in advance we're going to be doing pen testing during this period of time for this reason on these specific domains. Um, just, just so you know, so that they know, so they don't automatically like flag the site or shut it down or anything if it's getting targeted. Yeah. Well, and you don't want to blacklist the, the people who mm-hmm. are legitimately trying to alert you to a problem because right. they, they will, if they are doing their job right, they should look like a bad guy. Yeah. But obviously they aren't. So, that's something it's, it, I think it's incredibly important. And, and you're also right that at the end of the day, if you're not sure, host it locally, you know, and to like uh, Chris's earlier point, you know, get a Docker set up that can replicate mm-hmm. your exact, inf- you know, the exact setup, the exact configuration options that should be there so that when they hit it, they're hitting something that is equivalent in all the meaningful ways um, so that, you know, apples to apples basically is what you're after. And uh, the other thing is is a more general security topic. The uh, uh, the idea of social engineering of like you know hacking the person instead of the technology. Um, the really great book on that is Art of Deception by Kevin Mitnick. Oh um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's that's old, but most of the stuff that he uses in it, like pretexting and other and other like tricks, are still they're things he actually did back in the eighties and nineties, and they are still usable today I, I said it earlier people don't scale they also don't change right <laughs> we change much more slowly than computers do the way you trick a person is mm-hmm. totally different well you even think back to like the old hacker stuff when they're calling them up and you know i always think of the, the the best part of hacker is the part that lasted the longest is when he calls it up and he says yeah my computer is out and you know awol yeah on the blt drive <laughs> the BLT, exactly <laughs> It still but works. Still, yeah. yeah, it really does. I mean, that's I'm, if you're gonna target anything, that's the I'm way not to gonna do tell it. you why I know it still works. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I really got from that book, though, is that it's the the process of social engineering, at least from that book, anyways, is like a gradual escalation, like of small increments. You have, and you kind of leverage. Like, I know this much about your organization. That means you can give me this tiny bit more, right? And then you get from that, and then you know the little bit more, and you go to a different person. It's like, oh, well, I know these three people that you work with, and I'm in this office that you know is right down the hall from you. So clearly, you can call me back and give me this number that I need. Which which should scare folks if you think about how much you use Facebook, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Things oh, like yeah. That. Chris, man, I want to thank you for jumping on tonight with us. Um, I know yeah, we've, we've right. probably run. I haven't watch the clock now and i'm sure we've ran really long but <laughs> i have enjoyed this absolutely thoroughly i i appreciate you coming on and making sure that we're keeping things straight and uh, 
I know that some folks know me as a noted security expert Kansas man, but let me tell you something. <laughs> security in Kansas is not necessarily as stringent as elsewhere in the world. So believe it or not, that's not that much of a compliment. For if only our world was like global online or something. <laughs> Does that make Chris Wickman notable security expert Florida man? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't I think I've seen your best stories about you in the newspaper. <laughs> oh, hey. Well, it's better than Jeffro's uh, name for me. <laughs> the Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Chris, once again, I want to thank you for joining us this evening and giving us a couple hours of your time. I hope your beer was good. I hope your uh, your time with us was enjoyable and that you'll tell all your friends that this is the, the podcast to be on. Uh, <laughs> those are some, some cool dudes with a loose moose. Uh, before we take off though, I want to make sure, tell everybody, you know, what you got going on, where they can find you, what's interesting, uh, whatever you want to say, this is your moment. Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, you can find me pretty much Chris Wigman, C-H-R-I-S-W-I-E-G-M-A-N, pretty much everything from wordpress.org to chriswigman.com. Actually, as a follow-up to this, I've got a couple talks I've given, which are on WordPress TV and are linked to from my own site, uh, explaining getting started with application security and what to look for as a WordPress developer and kind of expanding on from there. So you can find me just about everywhere at Chris Wigman. You'd almost think that WordPress is an important piece of just the web these days. It's only 30%, you know. (laughs) I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. Uh, Be sure to catch us coming up. We've got, of course, real-time overview every Wednesday, except when I blow my production schedule because of conferences. Um, and we've also got something else in the works that I'm not going to yeah. tell you anything more about, except to say, just stay tuned. We, there is you, something else coming. If you caught the strategy car episode where we were guests, hint, hint, it will be in the show notes. Oh yeah. 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 Go check us out on strategycar.com. It's um, the thing Olena we alluded to on there. Yeah. We, we've alluded to it there as well. Um, this is our veiled attempt at keeping people interested. So, <laughs> Well, while you're staying interested with us, be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter slash DrunkenUX and also at DrunkenUX.com. You can connect with us on Slack via DrunkenUX.com slash Slack to sign up for it. It's Slack is a whole lot like IRC, except prettier. So yeah. I'm wondering if you haven't used it yet, because I'm sure most people, or if you use Discord. Discord is basically like a fun version of Slack. Discord and Slack look almost identical. <laughs> they use the same library. That's why. They must be. Yeah. Um, at any rate, I've, I guess I've, I can only leave you guys with one other uh, piece of information. And that is to keep your uh, personas close. But uh, what your users 
closer. 